You're listening to the Corbett Report. Hello, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. As promised, I'm going to be following up on the World War I conspiracy with a number of different podcasts and interviews and what have you. And last week, we looked at Richard Grove of TragedyandHope.com in the full interview that I recorded in preparation for that documentary. This week, we're going to be looking at Jerry Doherty and the full interview that I recorded in preparation for the World War I conspiracy with Jerry Doherty, of course, the co-author with Jim McGregor of Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, an extremely important book. If you are interested in this subject matter, please read the book. I cannot stress enough, there is so much more material in here and documents and sources there's so much more to go on um, than can possibly be encompassed in a conversation like this or in a single documentary like that. Um, so if you are interested, please do read the book. And also, while you're at it, please read the follow-up compendium, Prolonging the Agony, that Jim and Jerry wrote about the the things that were going on within the war to prolong the agony, to extend the war itself, to keep it going. Um, again, an incredible story that wasn't really touched on in the World War I conspiracy, but I will be having a follow-up conversation with Jerry specifically about the contents of this book, so if you want to get ahead of the game, please read this one as well. Of course, that will be linked up in the show notes, along with the link to Jim and Jerry's blog, where they have been blogging about the subject of history and the First World War and what this all means. Again, so much more information than can be get than we can get into in a single conversation like the one you're about to see. But having said that, the one you're about to see is a data dump of information, a lot of very important information in here. So I hope you have your thinking caps on and your pen and pad uh, pencil ready to uh, take some notes. There's a lot of information here. I think it's a very valuable addendum and resource for the World War One conspiracy documentary. Thank you again for the support. Um, again, the subscribers of this website make this work possible. Without your support, this would not exist. If you are not yet a member, please consider it corbettreport.com slash members. And here we go. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, a conversation that is being recorded on the 28th, uh, sorry, the 29th of October, 2018. And today we're going to talk about a subject that a lot of people might think that they know something about because they've learned about it in their basic history courses back in their school years, but they probably don't really know in any degree of detail. Um, but we're going to be talking to someone who does know about it in a great de degree of detail, and I say that advisedly because he's the co-author of not one, but two rather hefty tomes on the subject, Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, and Prolonging the Agony, how the Anglo-American establishment deliberately extended World War I by three and a half years, which are provocative titles about a very interesting subject, namely the real origins and uh, the machinations behind World War I. And again, I think this is a subject that a lot of people think that they know something about. Oh yes, that started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, 1914, and there was some diplomatic machinations that led to the outset of war. And that is a story that, uh, to echo the withering critique of physicist Wolfgang Pauli, it's not right, but it's not even wrong. It's just, yes, there was an assassination, and yes, that did lead to a diplomatic crisis that did resolve into warfare, but that 
really only just begs the question, well, where did that diplomatic machinery, how was that clockwork mechanism that ticked inevitably towards war, how was that started, and by whom, and for what purpose? That is the really the subject that is delved into in great detail in these works, uh, Hidden History and Prolonging the Agony, co-authored by Jerry Doherty, Doherty sorry, and Jim McGregor. Jerry, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, James. I'm looking forward to your questioning. All right. Well, this is, again, such a, it's such a vast subject, and it's a subject that people have some familiarity with, but probably not enough to really dig into this material. So let's start by picking apart really the central thesis of your work, which is that there was a, a group um, loosely affiliated in some ways, tightly affiliated in others, that is so nebulous it doesn't even really have a name, a singular name that we can apply to it, but in this book you call it the secret elite, which was behind the machinations that led to that clockwork machinery that ticked into action after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and led to World War I. So in order to break this down, I guess we have to start with this idea of the secret elite, which of course brings to mind the idea, the very old idea of the power behind the throne, but in this case a very specific set of characters that were operating in late 19th, early 20th century British society specifically. Let's talk about some of these characters, who they were and what their purpose was, and I guess to do that maybe we should start this story with the founding of this idea, this group, with Cecil Rhodes. Uh, who was Cecil Rhodes? What was his vision? Where did that vision come from? And how did it form the nucleus of this secret elite? Well, Rhodes was particularly important because in many ways, at the end of the 19th century, he seriously epitomized where capitalism was, where wealth really lay. He was the man, he was Rhodes of Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe. He was Rhodes of the gold mines. He was Rhodes uh, of immense, immense wealth, a great friend of the Rothschilds, and powerfully, powerfully important in the South African continent. He was also a great imperialist. He really, really believed in uh, Britain as the central world power, and also he had great faith in Oxford University as the centre of world knowledge. He brought these two together inside his head and he began to, to um, put forward a notion that great care had to be taken and that action indeed had to be taken in order to counteract the looming threat which hung over the entire world as far as Britain was concerned. And that looming threat was the emerging very powerful economic unit called Germany. I mean, the Germans did terrible things in trade. Do you know they had the cheek when selling goods to other nations to put instructions into the language of that nation? I mean, surely, to goodness, all nations on earth should have been learning English first. It was this kind of... And, and they, they genuinely, they called that unfair trading. They genuinely could see that something had to be done or Germany was going to really, really threaten to take over and perhaps go even further. Rhodes had the money and he had the contacts. He was uh, a great um, Rothschild man, and uh, he his his mining wealth was literally uncountable. 
He wanted to associate himself with Oxford because Oxford gave him the kudos of of the the university of knowledge of 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 that kind of power. And in fact, that was centred in a very secretive place called All Souls, All Souls College. Still, you'll find many references to All Souls College and people behind the curtain and such phrases, power behind thrones. Rhodes was centrally important in actually putting money up in order to begin to gather together like-minded people of great influence. So in the start, it was influence, people who could influence politics, people who had the money to influence statesmen, and the dream, the dream of actually crushing Germany. Now, in all that we do, James, please remember that phrase, crushing Germany. The Romans had the same problem with Carthage. You know, they kept on and on about Delenda S. Carthagena. We had to get crushed Carthage. This was the basic mindset of this group as it gathered together. Rhodes had the finances, but a more important man was Alfred Milner. Alfred Lord Milner, as he became, was the man who went out and settled the problem in South Africa by settling the Boers. He actually claimed that it was that, that creating the war was his his doing in order to stop this nonsense in South Africa, safeguard everybody's gold and diamond uh, holdings within the British Empire. And Milner was a great zealot for, he called himself a race patriot, did Milner, a great zealot for the British Empire. The man who did most to, to actually divulge these secrets was an American professor, Carl Quigley. Uh, we have great and high regard for Carl Quigley. Uh, he was a, a university professor at Georgetown and in many other places in the States, serious uh, academic, uh, who was so well in with the British establishment that he was given sight of documents and documentation which have since never been seen again. Uh, and through his first book, which uh, I've always found very, very impressive, the Anglo-American establishment, through that book, he lays the bare traces of what was going on and asks you, ask you as a person, as you as a historian, somebody wanting to know, he says, follow the clues. Look at what I'm saying. And Jim and I, Jim McGregor and I, in our researches over 10 years, actually continually went back to Quigley to follow the lines which he indicated. These were, early on, the first members of a group. The, 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 they're called the group. They called themselves the group. But um, we gave them, as you so, so rightly said, we gave them the title, The Secret Elite. Mapping out, as we have, a notion of a range of people who were either externally or directly part and parcel of a powerful, powerful group of financiers, of politicians who could effect the kind of change and pursue the kind of international policy which actually led deliberately to World War One. And so we have this group that forms 
sometime we could say in the early 1890s, uh, formally established with Cecil Rhodes um, being the impetus for this, but Milner and uh, Rothschild and others being part of that core nucleus. Um, but the the baton is passed, the uh, the torch is passed to um, Milner to really operate this group in the preparation, the run-up to World War One, And I guess the question becomes, what? these are obviously people of finance and political influence and journalistic influence when we look at people like William T. Stead, um, who were able to play the public on a number of different levels, the monetary level, the political level, the propagandistic level, to manipulate the course of events uh, in the direction that they wish. The question becomes, how did they specifically do that with preparation for a war with Germany in mind? What types of steps did we see in the decade plus leading up to World War I that were preparatory to the, the conflict that eventually resulted? Well, we must remember they had an outcome that they sought. They didn't have stamped the year 1914 on it. In fact, it may well have come earlier if events had turned in, in, different, in different cycles. How did they do this? Well, first of all, in Britain, they had a massive influence politically. It really didn't matter whether the government was called conservative or liberal. It was, in fact, the men who were very much influenced by them, who supported their imperial ideas, who were pushed to the front and who were back to the hilt. So that, in fact, although governments changed, foreign policy never changed. And that's very important. Secondly, in terms of um, propaganda and journalism, it would be funny if it weren't so tragically sad. And perhaps we can see a repeated, you know, contemporary things happening in the same kind of manner, which ought to make us a bit sceptical and perhaps even fearful. Because stories began to emerge, especially from the early 1900s, that made Germany the new bogeyman. There was in particular a writer of dreadful novels. I can't stress the word dreadful hard enough, but he had a wonderful following, uh, William Lequeux, Q-U-E-U-X. Here's the extent to which Lequeux had influence, or those of influence back Lequeux. He wrote a ridiculous, a ridiculous uh, novel. It's, it's, it pains me to call it a novel story called 1910. Now, in, in this story, Germany invades Britain in 1910 and they're marching they're through the, the, the counties of England and they're going to take over the government and all tragedy lies ahead and, and stupid numbers like 250,000 German spies are already here. Um, what is interesting later is that Northcliffe was the editor of the Daily Mail of the time, the owner of the Daily Mail. And Northcliffe actually spoke to Lequeux and said, look, do you think we could um, change the way that the Germans are invading Britain and go to more major cities? Because each day they said which city the Germans would be in. I mean, it got to ridiculous levels like this. They actually changed the route map in order to sell more papers. But the invidious thing behind it was this message that we have an enemy and they're called Germany and he's called the Kaiser. And the Kaiser was continually bad-mouthed in public, um, even though, and, and, and this is something that, that, this is where history can really annoy 
the, the official stated history does itself great harm. The Kaiser, Kaiser William II, was a great favourite of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria admired her far more than she admired her son. He was the emperor of Germany. She died in his arms, in the Kaiser's arms, on the Isle of Wight. Queen Victoria died. That's trust for you. That's love for you. But do you think that was published? Do you think that image of the Kaiser is the one which was promulgated? Of course not. He was he was to be become the bogeyman. He was the man who wanted to have a greater navy than Britain. What impertinence! Imagine daring to want to have a bigger navy than Britain, and that was seen as a most important political uh, threat. If the Germans increased their uh, naval power. So demands are made in the British Parliament. We are duty-bound to build more and better ships. So And so became the great, what is known as the, the naval race. It wasn't really a race at all, James. Britain was so far in front. It was as if it was a relay. There were, there were three laps ahead before the Germans even got started. But that kind of message allowed vast sums of money to be spent on armaments, and there was only one one enemy that, that could in the entire world be considered worthy of that kind of spending on the navy, and that was Germany. And the why of that was because of the German colonies and the fear and the distrust that Germany wanted more of the world, a bigger slice of the world. So all of this propaganda, all of this direct attempt to influence the general public to vote the right way, to make sure that, that great slogans of the day, um, we want more and we will have four, there's all kinds of um, stupid, easy to, to mouth slogans, which we sometimes hear in our own politicians. Well, actually, we don't sometimes hear. We regularly hear from our own uh, politicians dating back all the way to the early 1900s. So the influence of the press, is they, they were the media of the time, unquestionably. Obviously, things and influences are, are more widespread now. But the press and the anti-German press, Northcliffe, who was on the outside of the group, but um, well considered by the group, and, and uh, uh, he had access to them and to their thinking. And he knew that with their support, he was always going to be a success. That began to, to, to infiltrate the thinking. There were many other examples, but I think that, that that's quite a nice one to start with. Let's turn to the diplomatic machinations that led to the war then. Uh, obviously the most important Part of this from the British diplomatic strategy side of it was the formation of the Triple Entente, the, uh, the formation of the alliance with, with uh, France and with Russia, which really surrounded Germany and was even at the time considered to be part of uh, a prelude to war, a prelude to some sort of attack on Germany. I think that was in the diplomatic tea leaves at the time. 
Um, but that is quite a remarkable thing. Of course, England becoming allied with France is no mean, no small matter considering the histories of those uh, those two nations. And then with Russia as well, to which uh, England had been embroiled in the the great game uh, with uh, for control of Afghanistan and Central Asia as uh, part of the way of protecting the crown jewel of India. Um, obviously, they were at, at, at each other's throats for a very long time to suddenly be in some sort of military alliance. Again, a, a huge step. Um, these are huge machinations that took place relatively quickly in that first decade of the 20th century. What was the secret elite's role in the construction of that entente? The most important thing to grasp there is the word secret. Yes, the, the entente between between France and Britain, that that was displayed and that was a, now treated as a wonderful example of the new king, uh, Edward VII's tremendous power. He was a, a, a very, very real Francophile and uh, he was the person who made it easy for France and Britain to come together. The Russian side of it was not made public. The Tsar was incredibly, incredibly disliked Disliked because of his pogroms against the Jewish people, disliked because of his treatment of his own serfs and workers. Um, there's one thing when the Tsar visits Britain, you know, and actually doesn't land on on the soil of the country, stays on his yacht uh, near the Isle of Wight. But that, that's a by the by. But the, the Russian connection was kept secret. Much of these um, alliances, alignments, were, were not made public, not even not even to members of parliament. In fact, they were denied, were literally denied many times over that secret agreements had been made. Even two days before war was declared in parliament, um, they, they were saying they were lying to the people. I mean, I don't know, do politicians lie? Or Anyway, I'll leave your viewers to make up their own mind about that. But here you have, in, in 1914, rampant lies being told in the mother of all parliaments, as they like to call themselves, and saying there are no secret agreements. And if, before we go to war, we would come to parliament and, and seek your approval. That didn't happen. That just simply didn't happen. But there's another interesting thing, uh, James, an interesting concept, an interesting development here. And again, um, Edward VII from a certain point of view, deserves great credit. The other side of the coin, the German-Austrian-Italy link, the, the, this, this alliance that, that was posed, that posed as the threat to European peace. It never happened. When war was declared, Italy didn't go to war. Why was that, I wonder? Why did, let me tell you, Edward VII played a lot of time, paid a lot of time visiting Italy, meeting um, lots of uh, royalty and, and the, the aristocracy of Italy, handing out um, high honours to admirals and to, to army commandants and so forth and so on, even visited the Pope. And actually at the time, that was considered quite radical. Uh, when they went to war in 1914, Italy didn't move. Lots of clever machinations going on. But you see, history would have it very simple. History would have it, on the one side you've got these three, on the other side you've got these other three. That 
isn't true. Yes, the Russians. The Russians were linked to France. Yes, Britain was linked to France. Nominally, Britain was not linked to Russia. But without the Russian troops on mainland Europe, Britain could not have been in a war against Germany. The most that we had was a very small British expeditionary force, a very powerful and a very brave group. Uh, I've absolutely no doubt about that. But a very small physical number of trained men. They needed the Russian troops at the other side of Germany because if they hadn't taken action, the German army would have been all over France and that would have been the end of it. It would not have happened. So it was very interesting. These alliances were secretly concocted. These alliances were kept from the people, kept from Parliament and, of course, the papers. Whoever knew, and very few would know, certainly would not be printing that kind of uh, information. So an awful lot of this, what we call the hidden history, an awful lot was going on uh, to, to influence, to prepare specifically for war against Germany. From a very early time, there was only one enemy. That enemy was Germany. And as you say, the secret elite may have had their end goal in mind of war with Germany, crushing Germany, but they did not have that 1914 date stamped um, from the very beginning. And there, as you alluded to, there were a number of incidents that could have provoked Germany into war at an earlier time, which was the plan all along, to provoke Germany into making some sort of move that could get public opinion on the side of, uh, of war. So what were some of those incidents? How were they manufactured? Um, given that we're living in a world of territorial aggrandizement, uh, the, there was a concocted incident over um, Morocco and, and the, the allegation that, that Germany was wanted was secretly trying to um, take over uh, the British-French influence on, in Morocco. Uh, and and, and that, that literally was nonsense. But it was blown up into an incident and people were, were, were told, prepare. You had better prepare yourself for the possibility of war because we will not be dictated to by that Kaiser person over in Berlin. But one of the um, incidents, which I would need to make reference to to, to get the date perfectly right, uh, referred to a, a, a threat. Well, it seemed to well, it was portrayed as a threat. It was no more than a threat than than a fly would be if it came into your room at the present moment, of a gunboat sitting off the coast of um, of Africa. Uh, and it, it was purported that this, this was the sign that, in fact, Germany was going to have a deep water port and they were going to use it as a springboard to interrupt British shipping. When we researched it, Jim and I discovered that the size of that so-called gunboat was physically smaller than the King of England's royal yacht. <laughs> but, but history has you know, portrayed this as a massive threat to, to the British Empire and its masculinity, if you like, because that's how they saw themselves. Um, that, that, that's one of the main ones. The, the, the other one, um, in, in, in Morocco, it was all about who had the influence, who, who had rights of trade. And trade is linked to everything here, uh, as is money, as is, as it always is. 
the panther, the panther, sorry. Well, Jerry, I'm confused because, of course, the history books always tell us that Kaiser Wilhelm was this bloodthirsty tyrant who was lusting after the possibility of warfare, not someone who was goaded into warfare by a trap that was deliberately set and uh, wait, waiting for him to be sprung. So, so what, what's happening here? What, was Kaiser Wilhelm set on warfare from an early date? I doubt he would be an innocent. I mean, to paint someone pure white and someone else pure black is is a very dangerous thing in, in, in terms of getting people into opposite corners. But Wilhelm II um, was far more realistic and far less of a threat than he was he was made out to be. As for, from from his point of view, from the point of view of, of the German government, they had as much right as Britain, France, America, to seek new territories, to develop new industries, to, to improve new trade. I mean, they felt themselves surrounded, as they were surrounded, because they are sometimes called the ring of steel right round uh, Germany, comprising Britain with the, the sea, France, uh, Russia on the other side. And although Italy, as I've already said, was nominally uh, as a support mechanism for the in the event that didn't happen. Um, I think you could perhaps gauge just how much he didn't want war, the Kaiser. When you look at the telegrams that were sent between Kaiser Wilhelm and the Tsar Nicholas II, right on the edge of the precipice of war. Now, he could see, he, he could see the Russian, uh, the massive, massive Russian army of millions beginning to uh, mobilize along his frontier. And it, the, the whole series of, of uh, telegrams that, that were sent, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Stop this. We don't want war. This is, and he actually, Wilhelm actually held back on Germany's mobilization uh, in order to try and and get some kind of common sense going so that the war could be avoided. Now, this was in itself in 1914. That's not the action of a man who's desperate to have war. He would have, but you see, the clever thing is, and you've already put your finger on, on this, James, the, the whole essence of the very crafty essence of it was whoever we're going to fight has to take the first step. That was the, the, the whole tactic with the Boers in 1900 and before. This was to be the tactic with Germany. Nothing was to get out. Nothing was, no one was to take a move into Germany until the Germans themselves had mobilized for war. It may not sound much in the 21st century to say this, both sides were mobilizing. But when an army mobilized at that time, millions and millions of men, and you know, huge amounts of uh, munitions, war material, whatever, you really had to be certain that you were going to war or you were going to be attacked because the cost of that was ludicrously high. So when Germany found out that the Russians were literally at the border, even by, by waiting a couple of days, Kaiser Wilhelm actually put his own nation at some risk. 
And there are those who would argue that because it did that, the, the actual war started a couple of days late, which gave an extra couple of days for the British Expeditionary Force to get moving forward, for the French to be better prepared, although they were already up at their border. Um, but he desperately tried right to the end to stop the Russians and then stop the war. Well, I guess this brings us to the ostensible beginning of the story on the 28th of June, 1914, and the assassination of the Archduke, uh, which I will note parenthetically for the viewers out there, even the official history of World War I starts with a conspiracy theory for anyone who would protest that this is a conspiracy that you're painting here. Well, yes, the official story starts with a conspiracy, the, namely the conspiracy of the Black Hand and the uh, young Bosnians to commit an assassination in order to uh, influence the direction of events with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc., etc. Again, I think we know that part of the story, but the question becomes, was the secret elite involved in the assassination of the Archduke? We believe that, that they, they generally helped in the finance of the event, that they had knowledge that there were socialist groups of young men at that time in Europe who, who would see an attack on the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire as an important socialist statement. Money passed hands. We, we, we believe it, it passed from France to Russia through to Serbia, um, proving it. All documentation has been burned. I mean, it's just not going to happen that someone's got a ledger lying somewhere with, with all of the proof in it. But you cannot manipulate such a thing without there being background money. Yes, uh, if you look at the, the whole history of the Black Hand group of Apis and uh, of, of the machinations which were going on uh, in, in Serbia, you have to... You have to really begin to worry of how how sadly rotten that state was. Quite interestingly, and I've always thought this was a great quote. The uh, the English newspaper, the Manchester Guardian, uh, wrote at the time that if someone took the entire country of Serbia and attached a tub to it, took it out into the North Sea and allowed it to sink, no one would notice. <laughs> and I mean that that kind of kind of sums up where. What, what was literally a non-event of, of a country became the central focus suddenly of an allegation that these people were trying to, to in some way or other, so insult Austria that, uh, well, what happened after that was, and this is a word you've always got to watch, inevitable. That, because that's the story. Having assassinated Archduke Ferdinand and, and, and his wife, uh, war became inevitable. Well, it wasn't inevitable. In fact, all of Europe sympathised, sympathised greatly with the, the the Emperor of Austria. His his heir had been had been slaughtered. Uh, everyone everyone claimed great sadness and and great pity. And there was to have been a massive European uh, funeral for for the for the poor guy, but. Uh, what was put about that there were still some very, very uh, dangerous men abroad who might shoot uh, any royalty who appeared to do this. So it became more of a, 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 a not quite a family, but more limited um, state funeral. But the real, the real machinations 
came when the Austrians made a demand to the Serbians. Now, there's no doubt, no doubt that Serbia had nurtured these men. What Austria demanded was some kind of, well, a, a very detailed uh, retribution that, you know, they wanted all of the people who had been caught to be handed to them. They wanted the, the, the letter of the law to be applied and they wanted to be in charge of the investigation into the whole event. Now, it was that bit, they, that they should, be, they should be allowed to investigate in Serbia, which became suddenly the issue that everyone turned against Austria on. This incredible orchestrated bolt fast where, where they, they turned against the people that they had two weeks before been lamenting on, on their loss and, and, and being so, so concerned about. This, this was ridiculous. But suddenly Austria found itself in the, in, in the limelight as the malcontent. They were going too far. This was wrong. Of course, Germany was massively uh, and completely aligned to Austria. So anything happening to Austria was going to uh, reverberate and involve the Kaiser and Germany. And then, and then came coup de grace. Prussia, in the form of the Tsar, decided that um, they, they, they were the guardians of Serbia's freedom. Clever, I mean, I don't think even the Serbians knew where that came from, but they grabbed at it with both hands because obviously having the, the backing and support of Russia was unquestionably um, going to, to help them greatly. But suddenly, what had been a very sad event over two months grew into a situation where the, the world stood at the brink of war. At least Europe stood at the brink of war at that particular time. And it became the fault of the Austrians. It became the fault of uh, the Kaiser because he couldn't allegedly control the Austrians. That the whole paraphernalia of the media focused um, a, a phrase you, you won't have heard, fake news. Um, this was a, a most magnificent example of fake news, of genuinely taking the truth, turning on its head, turning it on its head, and using that as yet another reason why action had to be taken. It became the evil, the evil Kaiser and his uh, bloodthirsty Austrians against the poor Serbs who'd done nothing, backed by the noble Russians. And of course, if the, if the noble Russians were going to be involved, so would the noble French. If the noble French, oh, we've actually got a secret treaty, but we'll tell you about that later once we're at war. All right. Well, this, uh, this puts us squarely within the war, which uh, starts obviously in Europe in 1914 and eventually comes to America, which gets involved in the war in 1917. And there's obviously more machinations, diplomatic and otherwise, that uh, go into that story. But it brings to my mind, to my mind, the uh, the findings of Norm Dodd, who was the head researcher of something called the Reese Committee back in uh, the United States uh, it, later on in the middle part of the 20th century, that was investigating the the large foundations in the, in the U.S., how they 
um, the philanthropic foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment, etc., how they functioned and what purpose they were functioning for, which found a number of startling things. And one of the stories that he tells uh, that is quite interesting is when that commission gained access to the meeting minutes of the Carnegie Endowment Board uh, from its inception in 1908, I believe, uh, at which point, he says, the, uh, the members of that board spent about one year deliberating on what was the best way to change the course of society, should one wish to do so. And after a year of what he called very learned deliberations, they came to the conclusion that there is no better way to change society than war. And as he says, and so several years later, we found ourselves in the middle of a war. Um, that is... I think part of this story that goes towards answering the bigger, perhaps more fundamental question um, than how did the war start, why did the war start? You've, of course, talked about the need to crush Germany and some of the, the race patriotism that may have been motivating some of these members of the secret elite, but I think Norm Dodd's testimony brings in an even more fundamental layer of this, which is the desire to change society itself, to mold society in a different direction through warfare. Um, let's talk about this question of why. Why would the secret elite desire warfare um, and um, against Germany in particular, but perhaps against their own population in a certain sense? I feel that takes us perhaps back to, um, to Rhodes, because he fundamentally believed that society had to be tutored, had to be, had to be um, manipulated into an image which was a kind of middle-class English image of, of uh, a society which, which listened to its betters, which adopted the manners of its betters, and uh, which supported its betters in moving forward in, in everyone's, to everyone's benefit. Um, Yes, it, I have not heard, I hadn't heard of Rhys Dodds, but uh, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that that would link in beautifully with the the higher level of uh, concept that people need to be led, that there's a need for people who know better, have a better view of society, to take the lead and make it happen, because this is a, a primarily back again to Rhodes and Milner and, and, and the belief that this was what they would be able to do. And war is an instrument of massive change. We, we know that. It, it is an instrument of massive change in particular for the, those who are defeated. In a war where everyone is defeated, then it's simply an element of massive change. And, and that's a very, a very deep thought-provoking concept, that if everyone loses... Or of everyone except us, depending on who, depending on who the us are, loses, then we are going to be in a position to reconstruct in our image. And I think this kind of thinking is very, very central to those who wanted war not just to start, but to continue and not to stop when offers to stop it were made. If I can go back to uh, the notion that America came into the war in, in 1917, there were, in my opinion, very many instances 
of uh, Woodrow Wilson's government in particular, backed by J.P. Morgan, uh, Rockefeller, um, Herbert Hoover, and all his machinations, which are incredible. Uh, hugely important people at the upper end of the upper echelon of society who absolutely backed the English viewpoint. And I think you'd also see that this Anglo-American, Anglo-American establishment began itself to take a greater, more formal shape through the war. We, we find the links between the, the um, New York uh, powers that, that, that control New York, the money powers, the Wall Street powers, and, and British society, the, the 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 Pilgrim Society, by the way, the, uh, there's a group which which would epitomise all that you've just said there, James. Um, established both in New York and in London to the betterment of the the um, the powerful in British and American society. But American money was hugely important to the success of the British French in particular the British and French um, thrusts. Without American money, without American backing, the promise that America would find the money to ensure that, that, that Britain could wage war on a massive scale, there would have been limitations beyond which they could not have gone. And in fact, uh, the, the Morgan, the, the Great War Loans, Wilson himself began by saying, no, 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 we, we can't have this, this is not what it's about. But at the same time, behind the scenes, it was going on. And we, we, we deal with that in great detail in uh, the prolonging the agony. But there, there was an America, and there are an America. And right now, it's a very sobering thought. Millions and millions of good people who, who are thinkers, and we don't necessarily want to to, to voice anything uh, outlandish or, or or stand up and shout the odds at anyone, but who know the difference between right and wrong? And the American public was not in favour of war. There, there were there were um, there were big swathes of Irish Americans and, and German Americans, uh, the hyphenated American as Wilson uh, put down, tried to put them down. Um, an awful lot of ordinary people generously gave, did not want to see people allegedly starve or, or uh, children um, being being denied the very basics of life. And there's the amount of generosity from America, from the real America, was massively important to the, the survival of many. But they too were being abused by the powers who were supplying the munitions, supplying the funding, and vulnerable to some of the worst propaganda lies of all time, the Lusitania. The Lusitania is, is quite an incredible story, portrayed for a hundred years as the example of the soulless uh, German desire to just sink an innocent ship full of innocent people, Americans and British and French, children and, and old people. It didn't matter to the Germans, so the story went. But the truth of the matter is the Germans knew that a great amount of munitions was carried in that liner, 
the Germans put notices up in New York to say, please don't go in this liner because it really is a ship of war. And when it was sunk, the amount of propaganda that was poured in on top of its head had only one purpose. No, that, that's not true. It had two purposes. The first purpose was to galvanise public opinion against Germany. The second was to make sure that this continued. And the, the, uh, in one of the um, one of the, the the meetings that the British Prime Minister Asquith had, his first reaction to the Lusitania news of the sinking was, "Oh my God, I hope the Americans don't stop us using them to get munitions." Wow, he must have had a big heart, you know. And this and this is the truth. Um, these people, these people, manipulate to their own ends, and they were manipulated. They did their very best to manipulate America and American opinion. And then, of course, came the famous election of 1916. Well, he wasn't popular, but Wilson simply he, he had no kind of public persona which which warmed people. Um, on, on the contrary, he was a cold fish. He had dubious links with uh, several of, of those who were powerful in uh, Wall Street. But his propaganda for re-election was he kept us out of war. Here was a man, vote for Wilson, he kept us out of war. An inherent promise that he would continue to keep America out of war. And in fact, of course, within months, America... Was was thrown was thrown into the war by its own government. What I think is interesting is also the bankers' viewpoint here. America was so deeply involved in that war, financing. There was so much money which could only really be repaid as long as Britain and France won. That had they lost. The loss on the, on, on the American uh, financial, the stock exchange, the stock market, Wall Street, um, your, your, your great industrial giants would have been horrendous. So America was deeply involved, not the people, as is ever the case, not the ordinary citizen who cares, but the financial establishment who had, if you like, treated the entire thing as they might a casino and put all the money on one end of the board, and it had to come good for them. So all of this is, is, is going on. I mean, I, I personally feel that uh, the American people don't realize just how far duped they were by, um, by your Carnegie's, your um, J.P. Morgan's, your great bankers, your Rockefeller's, by the multi-multi-millionaires uh, who, who emerged from that war because they were the ones who making made the profits, not those who lost their sons, lost their grandsons, uh, whose lives were ruined forever by war. Let's talk about another... Uh, you, of course, mentioned the Lusitania and the effect that that had on the American psyche that eventually prepared the way for the American entry into World War I um, as one of the incidents. Um, let's talk about another piece of propaganda, which were related to the German alleged German conduct in Belgium and the atrocities that were alleged to have been committed there. Tell us about that propaganda campaign. 
Britain was prepared for war and prepared for propaganda. And the great uh, university establishment at Oxford piled literally hundreds of thousands of pamphlets on why they were at war, why they had to win the war, the justification of war, and that was all aimed at the American public, basically. But far deeper than that were the lies which began to come through the newspapers. I have to say that some of the best unmasking of the truth went on at the time through American journalists who were in Europe, who had a freedom which nobody else had to move around the place and who literally found that, that they were being peddled lies. There's a, good, a, a really amazing book called Propaganda for War and it's written by an American, H.C. Peterson. Um, and this book actually marked me in, in, in the, the way that I really felt for the first time. Here is a true journalist. Here is someone who is looking for the truth and not scared to actually tell the truth. Um, Peterson's book shows how American journalists discovered that the lies about, especially the lies that were told about Belgium, children who had had their um, their arms chopped off, their hands chopped off, um, nuns that were raped, uh, shocking things, genuinely shocking things. Uh, the Canadian officer who was nailed to a St Andrew's cross on a church door and left there to bleed to death. These were the great myths peddled in order to defame and 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 bring down the the whole image of any justification for German action and try and influence America into war. Uh, it's amazing now, I mean, a hundred years later, a hundred years and more later. For example, in Belgium, a very powerful and, and very loyal uh, Belgian cardinal um, who, who was a cardinal for Brussels, um, he... He was the one who, who obviously was writing to all his brother cardinals in Germany saying, this is dreadful, you must stop this. Uh, you, you went to the Pope. Uh, Mercier was his name, Cardinal Mercier. The German governor uh, said, excuse me, Cardinal, um, I'm very distressed about these stories about these nuns who, who have been um, so, so dreadfully defiled. Um, I really would need to do something about this. Uh, can you tell me where this happened? And can I speak to the, these women to reassure them that, that, no, I can't tell you that. No, I won't tell you that. Um, that's between them and their confessor. I, this, I am the man who tells you was that you will not in any way uh, make contact with, or be able to make contact with these nuns. In other words, even when the Germans themselves said, look, look, Let's do something here. If it's true, I will be the first to take action. No. The story ran. The German attitude didn't. And, and these kind of stories, the, 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 the American journalist offered a huge reward to speak to the child who had his hand cut off. 
by the Germans, and, and no child appeared. I mean, they, they couldn't even manufacture. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say that. They were not able to to promote anyone with any such injury whatsoever. It was as basic a lie as that. Now, that's not to say that there weren't um, there weren't the, the Belgians fought very hard to try and, and hold on to their country in the first six or so weeks of, of the war. That's not to say that there weren't atrocities on both sides. War is an atrocious event and there are always victims. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I offer no justification for it. But the lies, the unnecessary uh, abuse of propaganda, even when uh, in, in Britain they, they decided that they would put together the definitive uh, volume of evidence to present it to the world, the person they asked to do this just so happened to have been a former British ambassador to the United States uh, and, and, and a man, man called Bryce, who, who was very uh, well liked in, in the, the States. And his evidence was published and put forward, and there were screeds of stories after stories. Um, but then later it was discovered that, in fact, the people who took the evidence hadn't been allowed to speak to any of the Belgians directly, that in fact, what they were doing is they were listening to a, a, a middleman or agents who, who, were, who had supposedly taken these stories. And, and, and when one of the uh, official committee said, well, hold on, um, can I speak to one of, you know, can I speak to, to someone directly? No, no. He resigned. He wouldn't allow his name to be put forward with the, the, and that's the extent to which, you know, this is false history. This is it's not even it's not even uh, acceptable to call it fake news. It's just disgusting that that such. I would like to believe that in the twenty first century it would be more difficult because of all the modern media and and cameras. Who knows? Who knows? I might just be. An innocent here, but a uh, hundred years ago, they could put out such um, just awful, single-minded, but bigoted lies in order to try to justify, in particular, draw America into the war. And you, you, you might say, well, oh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It did happen. You know, but when you change, when you influence people. It, it's not a necessarily an instant process. It, it can take time as, as, as ideas bounce off each other and, and seem to, to amass a certain truth. Uh, and when that happens, when you begin to, public opinion begins to turn, then you're the winner. And that, I think, was what was going on. Well, then, given... Uh, that, as you say, it did take years to develop this, these, these various machinations to embroil Europe and then the world in war. And given that you've identified a lot of the Wall Street-connected uh, interests that were essential in getting America specifically into war, the Morgans and Warburgs and Schiffs and Rockefellers and that clique, uh, is it then co mere coincidence that those were the same clique, the same clique, the same group that was involved in uh, 
first of all, passing the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, and also in instituting the income tax in 1913 in the United States, just four years before uh, the U.S. found itself embroiled in that world war. It cannot have been, it cannot have been coincidence, not as a manner in which it was passed through Congress, but because all of these things were very, almost secretly, rushed through on the last day before the public holiday. I think, I think it was Christmas, New Year. Um, no, a great deal of forward planning had gone into this. And of course, uh, the, the big relief, excuse me, for Morgan and all his associates and all those who had loaned money was that when America joined the war, it was the Federal Reserve who took on the who took on the, the the mantle of repayment. It actually made sure that they received profits. But if things had gone wrong, the, the Federal Reserve probably would have would have been expected to to step in. So coincidence? Well, James, you don't believe it's coincidence, and I don't believe it's coincidence. But there may be those who who would like to believe it's coincidence. Uh, it's not, and and quite frankly, it's it it makes me a bit fearful for our, our future when uh, the great powers can think ahead, have the ability to to take steps to to promote um, people into power who are able to uh, dismantle society almost in the manner in which we have come uh, to accept it and to expect justice within it. And, and that has to be incredibly worrying as we look across the world and we think, well, if that happened over 100 years ago and these people with influence, with money, with wealth, with 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 a huge vested interest could try to reshape. And, and in fact, it, it, this whole reshaping of society that we talked about earlier has not got an end point. It is a continual, it's a continual thrust. It is a drive which... I, I suppose good people every now and again manage to push back a bit when, when we have decent government, when we have government that cares and is for the people and of the people and genuinely running matters in order to, the, to do the best for everyone. But truth is that we can't guarantee that unless, unless we actually all decide that we will vote and, and listen and, and, and you know, take the kind of... Um, civil action which is both allowed and necessary if we are going to safeguard ourselves, our families, our futures, uh, and truth. I think it's difficult for us a hundred years later to appreciate just how fundamentally the World War changed the world itself. I mean, it cannot be overstated. And we could talk about all of the different ways that happened. And of course, go into the post-war period and the, the carving up of the world, the literal redrawing of the map at Versailles and all of the, uh, the geopolitical game that took place there. But I think one event in particular we should at least take some time to highlight and, and note is, of course, the creation of the Soviet Union, or at least the, the Bolshevik Revolution, which led to the Soviet Union, the creation of the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, such a profoundly important event that had incredible ramifications on the history of the 20th century that, of course, took place during that war. Was there an element of secret elite um, involvement with that Bolshevik revolution? I think there's no doubt that a great deal of machination 
and forward planning took place in order to in order to undermine the Tsar and if you like deconstruct the, the Russia of, of of that time so that basically it, it would fall in line with the rest of the world. It's a very, very difficult question to answer with certainty because of the huge gaps in documents and the, the, the amount of obfuscation which have gone on over this. I think that it, it's something which has been well written by, uh, by a few writers, but which is glossed over. It, what was the function, what was the genuine function of, of the American uh, Red Cross relief which, which was in there? When you look at the, the, the people who were members of this group, they were not philanthropists, they were bankers. They were not um, people who were looking after the good of society. They were looking after the good of for, for themselves and, and for their institutions. Uh, there was a, a looting of, of, of Russia, an emptying of what wealth uh, was left. Uh, and, and in the end, of course, if they created a vacuum and into that vacuum came leaders who really were amongst the most awful on earth, uh, especially Stalin. Um, but Lenin led into Stalin. When you look at the story, when you look at the tale of how Lenin and Trotsky and, and the great, the great central iconic figures of Russian history were nearly miraculously brought from various points of the earth to Russia at that time to help fill that very surprising gap with people who were, to whom they were reliant. Um, you begin to wonder, how, how could that possibly be acceptable that you know, a mysterious train is allowed to flow through Europe at war and, and, and deliver Lenin and Trotsky and his friends, Lenin in particular, do you mean Lenin to Russia? How could it be that there's a, set, a new central bank which allows, uh, is, is the one vehicle through which money can flow out of Russia and it's actually going into the coffers of the usual suspects? Um, when we look at British in, in, uh, interest in the, I find it very annoying when you're when you're looking when you're you're following a trail of evidence, and suddenly that trail just collapses in on itself. Lord Milner, we talked about him some time back. Lord Milner, Lord Milner, who had by his own words actually caused the Boer War. Ended up at the end of uh, by 1917-18 as an unelected member of the inner cabinet of the British government, overseeing the war effort. He was he was the new prime minister by that time, the man who who had been brought in to to make sure that victory at all costs would be ours. Lloyd George, David Lloyd George, Milner is sitting by his side. That's really referred to in any history book you'll find in school, by the way. Milner goes to Russia 
as an envoy. Now, there's another whole backstory uh, about sending envoys to Russia, which involves the very suspicious death of uh, Herbert Kitchener, Lord Kitchener, uh, who died on, on such a, uh, a voyage uh, two years before. Here's Milner going across to Russia to speak with the Tsar and make decisions which the British uh, cabinet will ratify on whether or not Russia should be given more ammunition and more guns. Lord Milner is the last man, the last man of any power to speak with the Tsar of Russia before he resigns, before he steps down and, 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 and gives way. Uh, and, and so, by default, actually ends up with Russia coming out of the war. That was not the uh, that was not the 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 czar's meaning. However, how suspicious is that? Um, Milner came back to London and said, "Everything's grand in Russia. The czar the czar's doing fine. There's no popular opinion against him." which was absolutely 100% untrue. Within days, the Tsar had been forced to abdicate. So, yes, these people are all over Russia. The, the financiers, those from the great institutions, the politicians, and, and it, is, it is often lost in the murky forest of, of fact, which, which in, indeed... It's given very little attention when analysing what was going on at that time because the focus is kept on the, the, the unquestionable bravery of ordinary men who in their millions gave their lives for one side and the other uh, and, and who were lost because of it. But behind the scenes, that's where the evidence all begins to disappear, to dissipate, to... Uh, very strangely have no place in the story. As incredible as all of this is for most people, I think, to take in, who have only heard that, as I say, the kind of high school history version of this uh, starting in June 1914 and proceeding from there, it's even worse. Um, because, of course, we've been dealing primarily with the subject matter of uh, hidden history which you, again, Jerry Doherty co-authored co with Jim McGregor. Um, but your other book is in some ways even more horrific in its implications, um, which is that not only was there these grand machinations to embroil the world in warfare with all the millions of death that that entailed, but once in that warfare, that in fact the agony, as you say, was prolonged, that the Anglo-American establishment deliberately extended the war. Now, obviously, that, that's a, a very important subject that deserves its own conversation uh, of similar length and magnitude. But at, at least in brief, let's talk about that idea um, that this war was deliberately prolonged. Tell us in broad detail, uh, what, why, how, what was the purpose of prolonging this war? Um... Basically, the purpose was, quite simply, it had to be won. There was absolutely no point whatsoever in some kind of fight which was a, a draw. <laughs> there was absolutely no point if you'd lost millions of men and then you agreed, well, we'll just uh, stop this now 
and go back to where we were. I can see the rational viewpoint that says, look, unless we have a result, all that will happen in Europe is everything will go back to where it was, and in another five, ten years, we'll have another world war. Actually, that's exactly what happened over a 20-year scale after Versailles. But as I said at the beginning of our discussion, James, the word which is very important is crush Germany. And when you think about it, the, the several attempts always led from the German side to, to bring the war to an end in 15, 16, 17, and 18. All of these were rejected because they could not allow the Germans to come out of this with any element of, of strength, with any element of we are unbeaten. Although there is an argument which says that even as matters uh, happened, the German army in the end was not beaten, certainly wasn't crushed. And all of the war, all of the massive destruction, it was hellish destruction in northern France and Belgium, very little of it happened on German soil. However, what is also very worrying is the notion, and the notion which is current, which is that the war ended in 1918. The war didn't end in 1918. There was an armistice. An armistice is not the end of a war. And that armistice was predicated on President Wilson's 14 points where he magnificently addressed Congress and said, here are all the prerequisites for peace and this is what, if, if you sign up to this, this is how we can end a world war. And the Kaiser and his advisors thought that was a, a wonderful idea, were very much in favour of accepting that. They, they could see, realistically, an element of fairness if President Wilson was involved. The British, the French in particular, these two, were far more, far less, let me put it this way, far less honourable than President Wilson. He, he had the element, I would say, of, of an innocent about him in, in terms of the realpolitik of what was happening in Europe. And basically, they used him, the British and French, used him to let the Germans believe that they would be somehow noble in their treatment and then imposed a treaty which was so incredibly harsh that it, it, it really it, it exploded in all their faces in 1939. But I, I say this, and I would ask you to consider it, ask everybody to consider this. The war did not end in 1918. From 1918 onwards until June 1919, Germany was starved into submission. The British blockade, which is another huge issue in itself, James, the British blockade was really only 100% effective after the war. The great economist uh, John Maynard Keynes pointed this out, that he, and I think he was being sarcastic, said, 
at last the Admiralty have worked out how a blockade should work and they don't want to stop it because it's the first thing they've gotten right for the entire war. He more or less uh, said that. But the consequence for Germany was horrendous through deaths from starvation, from children, children illnesses and deaths and rickets and poverty from a people who very nearly became submerged in Bolshevikism themselves because of the determination to crush Germany. There were inside the French government uh, a couple of, of real hardliners who, who actually who really believed that they had to do this to Germany because of all of the evil which had happened to France. In a way, I, I, I've got more time for that as an argument than Lloyd George's, which was, I have to look like a hard man because there's an election and I need to win this election and I will win this election and I will be the man who crushed Germany. The war did not end. Even, I would say, after... After June 1919, it, it, matters improved. There are those who would say that the war never ended because the consequence of what happened to Germany was, in fact, eventually the rise of true evil in Nazism uh, and, and Adolf Hitler. That, that's a very big generalisation, I understand. But people are being have become history, history taught in classrooms. Generally speaking, endorses the notion that the World War was from 1914 to 1918. And in fact, historians love compartmentalising um, history into nice dates, as if it started and finished and that's the end of it. Nothing of the kind. But quite specifically, well, the armistice, which has become a great celebration over the years, not in the, uh, in, in the sense of some kind of victorious uh, illustration of a, a people's heart, but in terms of commemoration, of remembering. And that part I totally agree with. We should never, ever do anything to, for, to try and dig holes and, and hide wars. All of the great wars of the 20th century were avoidable. The First World War... Absolutely, certainly, and all that happened. We have to remember the brave who, who put themselves forward and who were the victims of war, the real victims of war too. Young men sacrificed that great companies make huge profits. So, yes, I, I, I totally understand the need to, uh, to find some way of saying, well, it finished there. But let's not use that as as a single act of truth, as, as if somehow or other a train which was war was put into a sign and it stayed there. The consequences rumbled on. And yes, we need to remember the victims. We absolutely do. And have the, have the generosity of heart to remember the victims on both sides. But the truth is not what we are told. Given the enormity of the discrepancy between the story of World War One that we all learn in school and the story that you're painting for us, the picture that you're painting for us here, what does that tell us about history itself? History is a subject 
of study history as a as, as something that is written and as we're told written by the winners what are the implications of this and and for people like yourself who are trying to study this information but as you say a lot of this information has been carefully scrubbed um, from the records or there's there's murky details that we can't ultimately drill down and we'll never find that ledger connecting this person to that payment to that event. What does this tell us about the construction of history itself? I find that a fascinating question. I gave a lecture a couple of years ago in Dublin and began by asking the audience, how did you learn about the First World War? And you know what? About half an hour later, we were still discussing what had just been an opening remark. And what it did for me was it made me very, very aware of of how exactly we we learn history ourselves. There are those who are keen on history, for whom history somehow grabs a part of their soul and and they want to learn more. And they read books and newspapers and watch documentaries and get into discussion. There are those who aren't and just run with whatever the uh, headline of the day is. That's the nature of the world. But in school, we expect our teachers to be teaching us the truth. But then you've got to ask the question, well, who taught your teacher? How did your teacher become a teacher? And of course, teachers have, have passed through a college university process. They've learned from the works that their professors have said, here are the sources you will use when you're writing an essay. Here are the reviews and um, the various periodicals which we tell you are the ones which will guide you towards the answer to the question that we have set. Now, this is 100 years old, this process of, of actually the universities becoming the guardians of history. Inside that, inside that product, the teacher has to pass his university exams. If the teacher wants to use sources which someone else has deemed inappropriate, then I'm afraid they can't expect to pass their exams. And that's a fact. The whole process also of um, actually uh, getting articles approved. One of the, one of the, um, one of the processes Jim, Jim and I went through, we sat with a number of uh, lecturers from different universities asking about the control of history in their university. Now, all of these men and women were guaranteed that we, we would not uh, in any way use anybody's name. And they, they come from all over the world, by the way, not just Scotland. And first of all, what, what surprised us, what we didn't realise is, if, if James Corbett was a, a history, a young history lecturer and he wanted to progress, he might write a paper on, uh, come on Jim, give <laughs> he might write a paper on uh, the Cuban crisis, okay? And he, he might have discovered that in fact, one of the consequences of the Cuban crisis was an increase in um, refugees coming from Cuba to the United States and the impact that had on society. Now, so the young James Corbett goes and does this and and, uh, investigates and discovers records which haven't been used and puts together 
and approved of a paper on, on this very subject. For that to be recognized as uh, an official paper of worth by the academic community, it would have to go through a process where peers read it. You wouldn't actually ever know who had read your paper, by the way, but it would be submitted to peers to read it. And if they read it and they liked it and they thought that it had some new light to shed on that particular topic, it might well find its way into um, a professional magazine, a professional peri periodic. If, if they uh, didn't like it because it was perhaps suggesting that there had been malpractice and there was evidence of something that uh, uh, people shouldn't have been doing or something had happened behind the scenes which no one wants to know about, then that would not be published. And they would be told to that perhaps they haven't used enough recognised official text within the, the concept of what they're writing. And they would be advised that if they wanted to proceed and move up the ladder, that they really should follow the orthodox method and the orthodox view. Jim and I got into a discussion, not heated, but, but it was very lively, with a, a fairly senior lecturer, and he turned to us and said, but don't you realise you know more about the First World War than we do, because we become specialists in microsubjects, and we, we talk, we give lectures to our students which is based on the orthodox thinking or the latest approved book. Um, there's an excellent uh, new book called The Sleepwalkers, uh, who, who's um, Clark, uh, I think it's Clark's work, uh, which infers that Europe sleepwalked into war, that nobody saw this coming. Rather a clever wee concept because it begins, it begins to unpick the notion that, that uh, the web other influences here, you know, but doesn't seek to blame anybody. But this is the way in which the centre controls those new thinkers and, and people who, who, for example, we've, um, over the last four years, we, we've had a history blog uh, going out about the truth and the First World War. Now, at least two people have contacted us to say that we, they have been told that they cannot use this. Uh, it's just that even though our evidence comes from uh, archive papers, from cabinet documents, from Library of Congress, from, you know, from secondary sources of high repute, the, the, actual, the actual formation of history is very closely guarded. Uh, and it remains so. And, and sometimes, sometimes I, I, I despair about this because... Uh, and if I can just tell you this anecdote, I'm watching a history channel uh, because my kind of geek watches the history channel and enjoys it very much. And it was about the Russo-Soviet War of 1905. And there was the Russian fleet uh, limping its way. I'd had to come all the way from Russia round the Horn of Africa because the British wouldn't let it use the Suez Canal. And you then see the massive, wonderful Japanese fleet powering across the sea. And I'm going, go and tell them. I'm speaking. I find myself speaking to the television. Go and tell them. And the what I want them to tell them 
is that this Japanese fleet was constructed in England. Was constructed in England and Scotland. Well done. Yes, indeed. It was built on the rivers Tyne, Forth, Thames. And these are the great, the great modern battleships built in Britain with money loaned to uh, Japan from the Rothschilds, giving work to the British and exports. Interestingly, the whole point of, of this was the Japanese were our allies and they would safeguard India from a Russian invasion if they took Russia out uh, at that point in time. But the, the truth is, for me, the angst was not that anyone was telling a lie. Of course, they were, and indeed, very likely, the editor who stitched it together had no notion that this that that's what he was showing. And it's that kind of, of um, what, how do I say this without being too harsh? Uh, it, it, it's careless use of history, which, which can also, sadly, mislead. Well, uh, history, when used carelessly, can mislead. Um, when deliberately uh, used in, in malicious ways, can, can mislead entire nations and the globe itself. And as the old adage goes, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. So the question then, finally, the final question, the summation of all of this uh, that we've learned today is, what can we learn about this history that we are able to reconstruct here and carry into the future. And you did raise the specter in the very beginning of our conversation of the idea that what we are living through today may be quite parallel to what we were seeing in the run-up to World War I with the creation of the rising German boogeyman to challenge the Great British Empire. And I think the parallels are obviously there with a rising Chinese power facing the American empire uh, in our current age. What can we learn about this story to, if not prevent, at least in some way inform uh, the, the events that are happening right now? A hugely difficult question to answer, but I say this. If people would and do read our books, listen to programs which offer you the chance to think for yourself, to develop other trends of thought that, that actually make more sense, if people are prepared to open their minds to the fact that we simply have to stop, we absolutely have to stop just accepting what anyone says as if it is the truth, when we know that it's nonsense. And I think sometimes it takes a very brave heart to do that. And if, if, if your program has, has worth and our books have worth, it is that we invite people to think, to actually have the bravery to not rely on other people, to investigate, to, 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 to make them empower themselves. And, and once you start empowering yourself, I really do believe it gives you strength. The grassroots is possibly our best hope. And if we can keep trying to invigorate and encourage and, and uh, underscore good people to, to, to continue to discuss, to move, to, to ask questions, to, to defend 
their rights and the rights of their children and not simply accept what big business or big politicians or whatever want us to believe, that is a way forward. James, I can't offer you anything other than that. Well, I think what you have offered is an incredible amount already. And I say that advisedly because, as you said before, uh, we like to think that it is at least more difficult for any type of secret elite operating in our current day and age to perpetrate the same level of propaganda as was waged in that First World War because we have access to incredible amounts of information at our fingertips right now, including the incredible voluminous amount of material you have put together on the First World War, which we'll again direct the viewer's attention to, again, Hidden History and Prolonging the Agony, co-authored by your co-author Jim McGregor and yourself, Jerry Dougherty. I would highly recommend these books to anyone who is seriously interested in delving into the details of what we talked about in this conversation, because as lengthy as this conversation has been, it barely scratches the surface of this material, which cannot be stressed enough. So <laughs> I will once again direct people <laughs> to, to these resources. And of course, in the show notes uh, for this conversation, as always, I will include the link to, the, uh, to, to your own website so they can find more information about your work in general. Um, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave, any, uh, leave the viewers with or anything that you'd like to say in summation of this topic? As you've just said, James, it's a huge topic. Um, had I realized when I started this that this is where it would end up, I don't know if I would have had the heart to start. But because I was so determined to play devil's advocate, because I didn't actually believe what, what Jim was saying to me, and I thought I knew better, I began to research myself. And when I when the volume of fact began to hit me, and I had to admit, Jim, you're right. I too began to, I mean, to, to write with them, to, to um, get delve into archive, to get annoyed. And please, can I just say to anybody, if you're going to get annoyed, get annoyed with the right person. It is not a librarian's fault. If the documentation isn't in a library, it isn't their fault. Don't start shouting at them. I speak with apologies from from personal experience. Um, yeah, I, I would say, look, guys, you're thinkers. I thank you very much because you're a thinker and you've taken the trouble to um, read our books and 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 uh, you know help help promote the, the whole notion that here is an an instance, an instance, a singular instance of just malpractice that we need to continue to, to, to undermine, open out, and have a damn good look at. So thank you, James. Well, uh, let me very much extend those thanks back at yourself for your generous uh, donation of time for, for our audience today. I very much appreciate it. I know the people out there do too, so I hope they'll check out the books. Jerry Doherty, thank you again for your time. Thank you, James. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. 
Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.